Howdy. Welcome to another episode of Canon Calls. This week, we have the opportunity to speak with Professor Wilfred McClay from the University of Oklahoma. He recently wrote a uh, essentially a high school textbook for U.S. history titled A Land of Hope, and I saw it recommended around on the internets, and I bought it, and it was really, really, really good. Very accessible, very readable. I highly recommend it, not only if you're a teacher in a classroom or homeschooling, but also if you're just someone like me who doesn't remember anything from high school and about U.S. history class. Go get that today, Land of Hope by Wilfred McClay. Also, before we get started, um, since we're on the history note, Canon Press is starting a series called the Christian Heritage Series, where we will publish something from public domain, a Christian classic, with a new intro. So, for example, this month's just out is Martin Luther's The Bondage of the Will with a helpful introduction from Douglas Wilson. So be on the lookout for the first few months here. We're going to get those out once a month, and then no promises after that. Look for those in the next few months, and without further ado, meet Professor Wilfred McClay. Just don't call me doctor. That, that's, 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 uh, that's one step too far. I'll, I'll, uh... <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll say I'm the kind of doctor who can't do you any good. Uh, I may be one well, that can't do you any harm, but so there's that. Uh, okay, yeah, well, I, I just I'm the kind of doctor who says take two monographs and call me in the morning. So, uh, <laughs> read read Thucydides twice and then come back and see me. Right, 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 right. <laughs> All right, welcome to another episode of Canon Calls. Today I am joined by. Professor McClay of the University of Oklahoma. Professor, thank you so much for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure. Now, you are at the University of Oklahoma, uh, well, not at this moment, but that's where you are teaching now? or That's, that's, my, that's my home base, yeah. And uh, I, I'm taking a year sabbatical uh, at Pepperdine uh, on the West Coast at uh, the School of Public Policy, which is a, a wonderful um, uh, graduate school of public policy that uh, I could talk about quite a bit, and um, and then I, I, any of your listeners who are interested in knowing more about it can feel free to contact me or contact them. But it's a it's a very humanistically and and Christian oriented approach to public policy, and I think we, we have a unique. Oh, I say we because I I've been here before, I've taught here before, I. I have a kind of ongoing relationship, but yes, Oklahoma is where I hang my, my hat okay. and, uh, and I'll be back there in May. Okay, uh, well, my, my carriage will turn back into a pumpkin, <laughs> <laughs> but it's fun. I mean, you know, Matt Pepperdine in case you don't know is in Malibu. Uh, so, so it, tough sledding it, right on the ocean. <laughs> it's very tough. You know, uh, it, it is. <laughs> well, even more, I think gratitude is, uh, is sent just so that you could pull yourself away from, uh, you know, from, from all of this. He's going contemplating on the dolphins. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So uh, <laughs> for those who are out of the loop or don't know, you wrote a essentially a history textbook um, that's, it, mm-hmm. that's very accessible, very well written. 
called The Land of Hope, an invitation to the great American story. And I had seen it recommended, and I picked it up, and I loved it the whole way through. So I sent out an email to you just to see, hey, I wonder you know, if this person would be interested. And I'll tell you, I was very surprised when I send those emails. It's very rare that I get a longer email sent back to me. And it was it was awesome. My and I never know how to take the question: Is this the Canon Press in Idaho? But or oh least... yeah, yeah. And look, I, I I for years I used to read. Um, uh, not that, that I mean there's a whole sort of there's a whole kind of very vast empire of related things there. At least I yes. see it as a vast controversy. Empire, but, uh, I used to I used to uh, subscribe to and uh, and read. Diligently, a credenda agenda. Okay. Um, and uh, which I, I'm not sure it's still being published. It's, it's they stopped sending it to me. But, yeah. <laughs> still but, charging, uh, but we it, stopped it, sending it. Was a... <laughs> okay. Well, uh, <laughs> that's, that's good because I, I wasn't paying anything and they were sent. Oh, okay, so, good. you know, it, it's maybe this, there must be some Calvinist uh, conclusion to be drawn from this, but I, I'm not too theologically illiterate to do it. But, but no, I've, I've admired what, um, what you all are doing there, the New St. Andrews, uh, you know, again, which I see is uh, complementary, if not. Uh, you know, subsidiaries of one another, uh, complementary undertakings, and and uh, um, so I, yeah, I'm also I, my wife and I are homeschoolers. There's a there's a lot of stuff that comes out of Moscow, and and uh, so I'm 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 from, I'm very you know uh, I I have good feelings when I see Canon Press. Okay. So well, that's, that's uh, even though effect. I am an Anglican, so they were not <laughs> okay. to be trusted. <laughs> <laughs> well, duly noted, and uh, like I said, it was yeah, it was okay. a, it was a great surprise, and uh, one of the first questions I wanted to ask was even just an introduction to the project in terms of. What on earth were you thinking writing a, another textbook on U.S. history? <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, I mean, it does seem a bit superfluous, although um, once I agreed to do it and then I started looking at uh, at what was out there uh, at the available text, I was really surprised at uh, at how bad they are. I I stopped using textbooks myself in teaching American History Survey a long time ago. I there was one uh, I would always sort of uh, order and have it available at the bookstore for people who just felt they couldn't take American history without a textbook. Um, and I experimented with that. I I, I um, uh, there's a now out of print book that I call the Synopsis of American History that I actually found very satisfactory as just giving the skinny you know the, the the sort of the plot and uh and then i could with readings primary source readings articles and and other things i could sort of fill that in um but uh there's all sorts of reasons and this would be a whole interview in itself why textbooks have deteriorated but they really have and they're um they're frightfully expensive I mean, hmm. you know, $150 or more. Uh, wow. And, um, and, and often, and there is ideological bias. Uh, that's one of the first things that people, particularly people of conservative bent say, and that's certainly true. But the worst problem is they're unreadable. They're un- and they're unreadable because they're not actually written by anybody. They're, they're sort of pieced together, um, 
as, as commercial products in in uh, committees and uh, various stakeholder groups that that monitor textbooks. So you you know the the uh, but I wasn't really fully aware of all this when I stepped in. I just thought that you know um, I resisted the number of people came to me over the years. I probably had a dozen times people, um, publishers and others have come to me and say, well, you know, would you be interested in writing a textbook? And I always just quickly and firmly said, no, uh, there's no uh, professional plus in it. You're never going to, you know, the dean isn't going to say, oh, you wrote a textbook. Uh, I'll give you a raise, you know, a promotion, whatever. No, there's no profit in it from that standpoint. And it's a crowded market. So unless you're with one of the big three, or, or um, Houghton, uh, uh, Houghton Mifflin, um, uh, Harcourt, Houghton Mifflin, whatever it is now, um, you, you know, your chances are, you know, you may make a little money, but um, and get some placement here and there, but um, it's not worth it. Uh, so I and I wasn't really uh, drawn to it anyway. I have been shocked. Not just surprised, but shocked by the reception of the book because um, I expected it yeah, to be a moderate success, and here and there uh, among uh, you know relatives. <laughs> I, I wasn't expecting it to be uh, in the first week after publication. The book was number eight on Amazon among all books. You know, oh, we wow. were ahead of, of Game of Thrones. We were ahead <laughs> of David McCullough. We <laughs> we were ahead of uh, oh. Well, the, the Mueller report. Um, so it was gratifying, but also very surprising because I didn't, I really didn't write the book with a general audience in mind. It's you, if you've seen the book, you know that it, the trim size is sort of unusual. It's a usual size for a textbook, but not a usual size for a trade book. So, um, but it, it people there, there is a hunger. That's what. I, you never know what's going to happen, but I think there's a hunger out there for a an account, a coherent account of our national history, something to give us a sense of where we are, where we've come from, where we might be going, where we ought to be going, um, that doesn't, as I say, doesn't downplay our faults, uh, uh, but also doesn't obsess about them to the exclusion of all that we have to be to be pleased with, even proud of, to cherish, and to be intent upon carrying forward for our posterity. So, um, uh, you know, that, that's that's <laughs> that's what I tried to produce. I don't think it's perfect by any means or full, completely fulfills that. But I'm, I'm very hopeful that it can find its way into classrooms as an alternative to well, particularly to Howard Dinn's People's History of the United States, which um, <laughs> is a, a book. My, my my publisher has marketed this as a sort of anti- the antidote to Howard Zinn. I didn't really think of it that way, uh, although it is in some ways. Uh, but it is by being the kind of book that it is. Uh, it, it doesn't take on Zinn and say, well, Zinn says this, but he's wrong. And that's not what high school students want to read they're, they're, they you know they're likely to conclude well you got well you guys make up your mind what the past was and then let me know meanwhile i'm going to keep playing video games and watching <laughs> reruns of uh, of friends or whatever but uh there are 
four people who've uh, contacted me just in the last week uh, who are college professors who want to use it. Awesome. So I may they have misjudged things there too. It, it's um, if I could just interject one thing on the, yeah. the reading level. I mean, one of the things I tried to, I don't. It doesn't condescend. It isn't dumbed down, um, but it is. I think readable and uh and and uh you know it's not dick and jane at the seashore but it is uh um it's also not written like an academic tome and it has a strong <laughs> narrative dimension to it um it, it and, and every everybody's commented about that and um here's the interesting thing i did want to tell you and then we can move on back to your question yeah, but, yeah. Uh, um i of course sampled this with various people and and uh it, without exception, the high school teachers, and I've had many students over the years who've gone into high school teaching, one in particular, um, a wonderful guy named Danton Costanrithis, who teaches at uh, the Bowles School in Florida, um, read it. And his reaction was, uh, I, you know, I showed, he, he, he showed the chapter on Reconstruction to one of his students, and the student said, can we use this instead of our textbook? And uh, <laughs> Um, and he said, look, I, you know, uh, my students are, it's true, it's a private school, uh, but he says, my students have no trouble whatsoever handling mm. your prose. Mm. Um, I showed it to three or four college professors, and they all said, well, you know, uh, this is good and this and this and this, but you, you, you really, I don't think, I think you're going to have to bring the reading level down a little oh, bit. No. You know, use a word like you like ambivalent, and uh, students will go, oh. So, so, I don't buy that. I think um, it's certainly been part of my philosophy of teaching that you you don't teach to the worst; you teach to the best, or you and you draw draw out not by uh, saying. Okay, you're in my class. This is going to be a really tough class. I'm going to really beat you into the ground. And that just you just sort of wordlessly presume. Well, of course you're going to do this. Um, how could there be any doubt of it? Sure. And most students write to the occasion. If you if you don't give them the out of feeling, oh well, this is a real challenge, and maybe I'm not up to the challenge. Um, no, it's just taken as a matter of course. Of course you're going to do this. So that's kind of been my approach or better or worse it's not the spoon feed and all that uh and i one other thing i'll add and then i'll, then I'll let you have the agenda back but i just i just completed and i'm in the throes of the production of a teacher's guide hmm. pretty comprehensive i think it's going to be about close to 400 pages long uh, in, in the final version but this this is something that i think will be i i think actually the best teacher's guide I've ever seen. Um, it has questions, it has tests, uh, it has uh, um, you know, questions and answers, of course. <laughs> Importantly, you have to have the answers. <laughs> right. um, summaries, uh, a special teaching units on the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, the Declaration, the formation of the party system. You know, uh, And I think teachers are going to really find this uh, very useful, um, not just as a as a source for tests, uh, but as a teaching tool. Um, I put a lot of effort into it. I had uh, a wonderful colleague, uh, co-author uh, named John McBride, who was a retired uh, teacher who was a master, truly a master teacher. So it's uh, on the high school and college level. So um, I think. 
I do think that we have everything, we're going to have everything in place that we need to make our way into the schools. The only thing yet to be done is actually fairly easy. It's going to be to digitize it all and put it on the on the internet, uh, the, the teacher's guide. Okay. And we will do that in the fullness of time. Uh, but um, uh, so... Do you have a well, a, a pub date for that? Homeschoolers, you know, and homeschoolers, yes. Uh, not yet, but I'm I'm thinking they'll have it out by late March. We we really need to get it out so teachers can can have a look at it. But uh, I I should say too that I, I, I homeschoolers are very much a part of uh, we 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 as I mentioned before we're homeschoolers so with our two children, um, and. Uh, uh, and they they have done very well. My son just got his PhD in classics from Berkeley uh, as a <laughs> professor himself. Seems pretty. Uh, my daughter like is brilliant. Out. Brilliant. My daughter is a brilliant journalist. Uh, um, so um, yeah, I, and and uh, um, so I, we're very happy with uh, with homeschooling, and and you know that that's uh, we're great we're we're great proponents of it. I, I um, so I had homeschoolers in mind. Um, and actually, John McBride, my collaborator, uh, has worked with homeschoolers. Uh, so that's that's I, I mean that is a definite audience for the book. Um, uh, and, uh, uh, and and you'll see I say this uh, a number of times that the, the book has the feel of, a, of an author. I don't try to conceal that. I think that's a plus for you to feel like you're a human being behind a human sensibility behind the work. Absolutely. It's something that textbooks, textbooks are, are, are by design, try to be a sort of voice of God kind of experience. Well, I don't, <laughs> I don't pretend to that. Um, the personality so, uh, state. Yeah. So along those lines, as I was thinking about my experience with school, uh, can you tell me about the distinction between social studies and history? Oh well, yeah. I mean, um, I, I think um, that's actually very hard to. <laughs> it's hard to define because of the nature of the beast. I mean, social studies is a sort of deliberately ambiguous term, but it's <laughs> it's a way of incorporating a, a wide range of social scientific perspectives and disciplines into one endeavor. So that you know, geography. Is generally part of social studies and some kind of rudimentary sociology, anthropology, economics, right. um, and the particular proportions um, of the of these different elements and, and and the way they're introduced, whether they're introduced in a, as complementary to one another or as distinct from one another, that varies from place to place. What tends to be lost is in in social studies is the specifically historical um, insight, uh, which is actually what, what one of the most, it's something difficult. It doesn't come naturally to us to see, you know, the reality of the past, hmm. um, that, that the past is in some way inherent in the present. Um, and, and, uh, and that, that our lives are, enriched in a variety of ways, including, you know, existentially important insights by a knowledge of how that past uh, is, is imminent in, in the present. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's, um, 
there's a specifically historical form of consciousness. Um, and I try, try to talk about this in Land of Hope without getting too murky and <laughs> and uh, drowning in philosophical uh, jargon. Uh, <laughs> but it, uh, uh, it, it, and it does have to do partly with the importance of stories, that stories, whether we admit it or not to ourselves, stories are one of the principal ways we organize the world uh, in in our minds. Uh, we we um, in our in our certainly our our worlds, our social worlds. Um, uh, what kind of society are we living in? Where is it going? Whither whither does it tend? Uh, <clears throat> this is all um, um, a reflection on the sort of narrativizing, you know, storytelling, story making. Um, um uh aspect of our of our natures of our human nature uh so um to uh, to see to see ourselves as as part of a story is very important so it's a need it's a genuine need for meaning that we have and and which stories what stories hmm. we associate ourselves with um uh and i don't just mean consciously but i also mean on a deeper level because as uh, as a historian friend of mine says, what what people think is not always what they think they think. We have well, Newman calls it a notional understanding of, uh, but then there's a deeper, um, you know, I, I mean, for Americans, a, a certain kind of progressive understanding is deep, 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 and even those of us who are skeptical of that and i mean small p progressive not you know not not ideological but a, a sense that that um you know it, it, it the, the placid acquiescence in the way things are hmm. this is not not the american way uh for better or worse uh um uh fatalism uh you know uh i think on a deep deep level we're very allergic to fatalism uh, and that I, that I think is a good thing. That's part of what being a land of hope means, in my view. But on, on I want to say something because I, I'm privileged to have your audience, um, and I can, this is something I can say to them that they will understand is that the the the, the Christian story um, is, uh, and that's the, the big story <laughs> as far as we're concerned. I right. mean, it's a story that overrides. Other stories. I did, you know, I, I that's maybe in the background in Land of Hope. I didn't think that was my charge, but I also can't help who I am. And uh, the book is very, uh, very generous to uh, religion and to Christianity in particular, um, um, say Judeo Christianity, biblical uh, faith. Um, but I, you know, I think of, do you know the song? Um, it's an old, old hymn. Um, um, what is it? The Blessed Assurance. Yes. Fanny Crosby. Yes. Uh, well, you know the chorus of that. This is my story. This is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. I, I love that. <laughs> and uh, I, I didn't work it into the book. I was sorely tempted. But, uh, um, you know, when you, when you become a Christian, when you uh, are converted— in some sense, your entire narrativizing of reality becomes changed. Hmm. 
um, that uh, the, the 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 and the, the the birth of Jesus Christ becomes the most uh, what, what the sort of central uh, or the life of Christ it becomes a sort of central event of human history. Well, obviously, I'm not going to do that in Land of Hope, but it is. Um, yeah, I use this as an illustration of how central stories are, and stories are different from sort of analyses for analytical schemata. Um, that um like um you know the, the 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 was it the oh i can't think of the name of it but the, the personality test that the briggs oh yeah myers briggs uh, myers briggs that's it yeah where you come out oh you're a you're a, a perceptive extrovert or you know they have what it's maybe 10 15 categories of of uh, you know very mechanically combining yes these jungian uh, ideas and um it, it's a it's a that's a fun parlor game um but uh it doesn't it we all are, are we're stories hmm. we're not freeze frame um categories um and this actually gets back to the social studies question that that um social studies social sciences um political science for example which is a discipline that has a lot in common with history but his political scientists are always working towards um the the um the construction of ideal types hmm. uh, particularly political theorists uh, who are the ones i deal with the most um and uh, that's very – I mean, as historians are interested in change over time, not just sort of arriving at um, uh, abstractions that, that, that can be – can substitute for the, the muck and mire of actual uh, human events and, and, and uh, change over time. So, so we're, we're – uh, and one of the defects of the historical view is sometimes we – take change to be, you know, the sort of the Heraclitean flux is all there is. Hmm. And that's wrong, too. The, 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 the way I present the Constitution in Land of Hope, and this is what I believe about the Constitution, is that, yes, it emerged out of an intensely, you know, sausage-making political process. Um, but the, the, the principles that emerge and that become instantiated um, and are now, of course, being you know violated left and right by by our actual political practice. But the the, the notion of power countering power, ambition countering ambition, the, the division and separation of powers, the, the danger of the concentration of power, all these things, which are certainly had religious roots as well as secular ones for the founders, um, um, is I think an eternally valid insight into the proper way to organize human affairs. So so I think we historians have to watch out for our tendency to to reduce everything to the context and the temporal flow out of which it emerges. You know, and, and it shouldn't be hard for Christians to do this. After all, we believe that the most important facts about the universe were revealed in a by the, a by one particular life at one particular time and place, you know, the scandal of particularity, as you call it, um, which um, uh, it offends against the sort of universalistic enlightenment notion that truth is sort of like Newtonian space. It's the same everywhere, <laughs> every place. Uh, uh, so what's with this 
guy that was born in uh, Palestine at this particular time in the, in the, in the Roman Empire and uh, you know, all the details that we know so well. Um, um, why is that? Why can't there? Why can't we have one here in uh, in uh, in California? <laughs> in Malibu. <laughs> Yes, in Malibu. Why? Why not? Why can't we have our own? Uh, you know, Emerson uh, wrote about this. You know, why can't we have our own, our our own revelation? Why do we have to? You know, take it have like secondhand rose in the old song. Why do we have to have secondhand experience of the transcendent and the divine? Uh, you know, it, it's it's well, we you know, I think we as as Christians uh, view them the matter differently. Um, one thing uh, you should. one thing that I love and you um, have sort of summarized it here is and in, in your introduction you talked about th- that just that the importance of narratives to uh, humanity and to what whether someone personally or familially or nationally narrative plays a, a big role in terms of meaning um, and mm-hmm. what I loved about that was that um, I think just subconsciously as we all walk around every day when we consider history or I relegate that to schools Mm -hmm. or the classroom or tests. Mm -hmm. And what I think you illustrate is, no, that's history is who you are. You don't need the clinical Mm -hmm. Myers-Briggs to do that. And and then additionally with the Christian insight, um, you are spoken by God. So today you are the character. You're just you and you Mm -hmm. will make character Mm -hmm. distinctions and, People can give you a, a literary analysis. Do we even like this character? You know, um, so I very much appreciated that from the get go. And I think, um, as you said, however subtle it may be, or in the background or in the air, um, sort of that Christian narrative is. I certainly sensed it as I read through. Yeah, and and I think you know, the, the, even the most um, uh, poorly educated person. And an unreflective hmm. person, you know. I I um, I don't want to characterize any particular. <laughs> Let's just say me, sort, But you know, well, as I say, me. But, uh, <laughs> that, that, that you do have a sort of sense of, um, you know, a lot of people. You, you have a few drinks with them or whatever, and they sort of say, "Well, this country's going to hell," you know. And it, it is a kind of sense of uh, declinism. Or declension is the you know the term going back to the Puritans, uh, the sense that, and of course as as, as uh, uh, a Christian particularly coming out of that tradition, you know, there's also the idea of revival. That this is what sort of what human societies do: uh, they decline, they they become in, uh, fall into infidelity and various kinds of sin, and then something happens to awaken. Their sensibilities, and they and they rise out of that. And that that sort of sine curve of uh, of exaltation and depravity is uh, is is part of the story we live in. I, that's one of the things that 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 actually gives me hope about what I think is a is in many ways a, a surprisingly dark time. Uh, I say surprisingly because of material in material terms. Uh, it's hard to think of a time in human history that we've been better off than we are now, and yet, you know, yet that we're we're constantly fretting about how how awful things are, how awful are you know our political figures, and uh, how decadent our 
uh, and and all of that, you know, or some of it, depending on your perspective, is is true, but or at least plausible. But um, you know that not, nothing in life, and this is a secular principle uh, as well as a sacred one, is that things nothing in life is guaranteed to continue on the trajectory that it's on. Um, and um, and the big thing that I think it is um, again an element in history as a distinct discipline. I mean, of course, history can be analyzed in terms of trends and larger forces. And I think as as we moved into modern organized technological societies, that we're we're ever more likely to do that. Tocqueville predicted that that this would be the way of history that the individuals would be de-emphasizing the events. Well, that's just, <laughs> that hasn't, that part hasn't turned out. You know, events are still important. Individuals are still important. Contingency is still important. Choice is still important. <laughs> uh, the way, uh, you know, and the way, and that, that, that the fact that we are ensouled creatures who um, are both burdened and liberated with uh, the, the ability to to make choices. Um, that's that's too is part of history. That history is, has has hinged moments. Um, it's it's not all a matter of a, of the sort of uh, collision and interaction of abstract forces. Uh, mm-hmm. It is. Uh, is uh, you know there's <laughs> the Cleopatra's nose kind of issue. you know Cleopatra's nose had been longer you know everything would have turned out different all that uh, you know uh, events you know events always uh, disturb the confident predictions of the of the sort of know-it-alls who may well have studied history more carefully than the rest of us but. Um, but history is full of surprises, and that's an important lesson of history. Is that uh, um, I think actually, you know, history very rarely repeats itself. Uh, almost never repeats itself. That that's one of the most <laughs> misleading uh, cliches out there. Would um, you say it rhymes? And I'm not sure even. Well, yes, that's the Mark Twain. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what that. I don't know what that means. So I can't say yes or no to that. I've never been able to figure out what it means for events to rhyme. I think you just uh, nod sagely but, and uh, we move we move forward. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, well, maybe they're kind of like, um, yeah, it is poetic, and, and but I, it's never quite done it for me. Just as calling slavery. America's original sin does not do it for me. I'm probably too much of a theological literalist, but it it, it um, <clears throat> doesn't seem quite right. Um, but anyway, I've gotten you off your agenda again. No, so, no, uh, let me, we let were. Me yield to you. <laughs> I'm I am thoroughly <laughs> enjoying this, and if you're if you're fine, I'd love to keep going for a little bit here. Uh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I'm curious to know, as uh, sort of moving just to the the meat of the text, what are some consequential moments in our history that maybe mainstream accounts largely disregard or ignore? Actually, the 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 the, the Mexican War is much more hmm. consequential in our history than than uh, conventional accounts um, grant. I think it was the Mexican War that made 
and this is not and this is not me out there all by myself making this contention. Uh, a lot of us historians would just kind of nod, yeah, at what I'm about to say. But I think the Mexican War was what made the Civil War almost inevitable. Um, uh, and nothing. I, in light of what I've just said about contingency and all that, you know, you wouldn't be surprised to hear me say I don't think anything is inevitable. Uh, you know, death and taxes, yes, but but in terms of larger outcomes like a civil war, I. I I would say almost inevitable, hmm. but what <clears throat> the the issue of slavery, which the Missouri Compromise had uh, had momentarily um, pacified, and it's hard to see how that could have remained in place. But it was expansion, and the, particularly the enormous expansion of uh, um, nearly as as large an expansion proportionately as the uh, as the Louisiana Purchase, um, put the whole issue of slavery in the territories on the table. And that was ultimately the issue that uh, that um, um, I think made – was irreconcilable. But it was helped along by, you know, the, the stupidity of clumsy politicians by a just – disastrous Supreme Court decision and Dred Scott and mm. you know I, I'm not sure that I would balk at saying it was inevitable but the, but I think the Mexican War in, in a lot of ways and it may be that you know Mexicans remember about the Mexican War more than we gringos do mm. uh, and uh, there there are uh, simmering resentments about it um, uh, and um Oddly, you're a Texan, so you learned about all this stuff in school, right? You went we school we did Texas, have a year of Texas right? history, yes, right. Oh yeah, yeah. So you learn all about all this, and I I, I presume you learn in a fairly fair-minded way that um, uh, at first the, the Mexicans were encouraging Americans to come into Texas, and then when so many came you know, so quickly and and set up shop and brought their slaves with them. They could say, "Wait a minute, okay, no, we 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 didn't really mean that. That was too late." Uh, but uh, that's my simplified version of it. But uh, uh, it, it's a it's a tangled and interesting history, and certainly the Mexicans don't come off all that well themselves. But um, um, anyway, that's one. Yeah, you know, the other thing I I and I feel very strongly about this. I think that um, there's, uh, and this is I think a partisan thing. There's been a <clears throat> a uh, unfair, really kind of contemptibly exaggerated view of the 1920s as um, you know something that historians know perfectly well is not the case, but uh, that the sort of Roaring Twenties, Age of Excess, um, and that in particular um, Coolidge. Coolidge's presidency was a sort of low point of all that. I I pushed back hard against that, against the disparagement of Coolidge, who I think <laughs> just looks uh, almost as good as George Washington in retrospect um, <laughs> compared to the, the the politicians we've had really since um, maybe Truman uh, or Eisenhower. Um, uh, Really, from then on, I think from from the, the, the election of 1960, I don't, um, with maybe the exception of Reagan, uh, I don't think we've had great leaders. Um, uh, 
<clears throat> but um, so I, I, I tried to redeem the 20s um, and point out that a lot of what we think we know about the 20s is really this is a way of introducing a theme that runs through the rest of the book, but that a lot of what we know about the twenties is a consequence of the, the what I call the gargoyle journalism of the twenties. And, mm. and I think we're, we're entering a phase in our history where pe- people are now very conscious of the way that journalists and journalism shape, as they say, the narrative, mm-hmm. uh, everybody in America talks about the narrative, right? Nobody talks about narratives outside the <laughs> Academy. Uh, 20 years ago, it's, but now everybody's conscious of this, and uh, you know whether you're a Fox News aficionado or an MSNBC or CNN or whatever, you know um, that what the other side is saying is dismissed as well. There, this is a construction of their narrative, and uh, well, I think you're earlier on, and you may think about it. You may see this in your own life in say the generation of your parents or their parents. I think I see it I, that, that my, my parents had a greater degree of credulity towards what they would see on television or read in the papers or hear on the radio than I did. Um, and my kids are, are view me as credulous. <laughs> so I think we, we've had a growing awareness of the way that journalism mediates um, our sense of reality. I think this was just beginning to take hold in the twenties, hmm. um, and it, it's it's the one one of the places in my book where I really um, do venture out into saying things that are not uh, going over familiar ground. But that, and I'm not saying this is an original thesis with me. But we often say the twenties are the first decade of our times, and I think part of what we mean is that it's. You know, we have we don't have television yet, but we have radio, uh, we have mass communication newspapers. We have this sort of massification of our news diet of the the the, uh, the sort of um, and a construction of a of a whole national mythology of events, which includes sports heroes. You know, the great. Uh, the, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, the, the Bobby Jones, the golfer, uh, Jack Dempsey, the, it, 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 all this bursts on the scene. Right. You know, the uh, great, great um, uh, prize fights and football teams and baseball um, as, as national entertainments that are both uh, supported by and supportive of the new national media so that images take hold, um, you know, uh, that are really more a product of the gargoyle media um, uh, than, than uh, a, a accurate and thoughtful reflection on the times. I thought you might so blame think, it on you know, Gatsby. 20, well, you know, uh, <clears throat> uh, that's, I mean, it, look, look, the, 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 the book itself is is tremendously interesting and, and it has all kinds of uh, uh, misgivings about itself, shall we say? And mm-hmm. and uh, um, and remember all the characters: Nick Carraway and Gatsby himself, and Tom and Daisy Buchanan. They're all from the Midwest. That's right. They're all from they're all from the heartland that, and they find themselves adrift 
in uh, you know the Empire City. Not unlike their author. Yeah, not unlike their. <laughs> very good, very good, exactly. Not unlike their author, and uh, and of course Fitzgerald is, is has this desire both to plunge into the materialism and drunkenness of uh, of a certain class of people in the twenties, and uh, almost puritanical loathing for it all. And it's clear even just in Gatsby, you don't even have to look at his life, uh, um, that he he has this this misgiving, hmm. this sort of uneasiness. And I think we do. This is an important theme that 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 uh, what might be called the perils of prosperity. I think I think we're going through some of that again now. It's a it's a it's a a way in which our religious heritage um, doesn't go away, even as we become a more sort of putatively, allegedly secular society, um, we still have these reflexes of sense, you know, I, I, this is not <laughs> this is not the way it should be. Uh, yeah. Although I'm delighted to indulge it, you know, it, it's somehow not, not, not that right. lingers. Anyway, yeah, Gatsby is, um, but of course it makes for some of the worst movies uh, <laughs> ever made. Are they, they, um, the, the 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 one with Robert Redford and the one with Leo DiCaprio, uh, these are horrible movies. A, a monument to uh, filmmakers' inability to resist uh, making these these garish parties the center of activity. But in fact, there's a whole lot else going on. Um, uh, and uh, I, I w- well, you know, the, the, the organized crime part of it gets downplayed. I think a, a bit. Too much, but um, um, uh, it's a, it's a terrific book. I think it, it, it one that uh, is sort of, I mean, beautifully, beautifully written. Um, uh, and if nothing else about Fitzgerald, he was a wonderful craftsman. But so I wouldn't blame Gatsby, you know, which really um, was not an instant smash, correct, uh, in its day either. But um, <laughs> but certainly was culturally influential. Um, you know, Hemingway was as much a part of that literary culture, right. maybe more. Uh, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, that's another part that this whole uh, sort of redemption of the twenties. Um, uh, you know, we nobody ever reads Booth Tarkington. Uh, well, nobody reads Booth Tarkington. Period. Who was from <laughs> Indiana. Uh, but um, uh, uh, he um, um, he has a book called Alice Adams, which I have taught uh, when I have occasion to do this. Uh, Gatsby and Alice Adams together. Alice Adams won um, won the the Pulitzer Prize oh, for wow. fiction. So it was a bestseller. <clears throat> it's about a a, a modest. Um, Working class girl who um, is is kind of um, um, underprivileged, as we would say, who's miles and miles away from the Daisy Buchanan figure uh, of um, of the Great Gatsby, and yet, yeah, she it's a it's a sort of testament to the ability that somebody who, as Bill Clinton would say, works hard and plays by the rules can can uh, can get ahead and. It's um, it's very different, and I think in many ways more characteristic of the twenties. Hmm. The twenties are not just this um, 
bathtub gin, jazz babies, <laughs> and, and also the the rise of the Ku Klux Klan, you know, mm. uh, and, and and that whole uh, uh, um, uh, element of the twenties, which is um, is definitely part of it. Um, but I mostly I wanted to, I wanted to redeem Coolidge, even though I only devote about a page and a half to him, because Coolidge was a remarkably um, well-educated man uh, who who uh, read history with understanding. His speech, which I feature in the book, on the um, 150th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence, is a masterpiece, and it's and it's a philosophical document because what Coolidge does there is to present a a very fundamental critique of the progressive movement uh, epitomized by his nearly immediate predecessor um, Woodrow Wilson Hmm. who thought well the Constitution enunciates principles that were fine for the moment you know the best political deal that could be had but we moved beyond that uh, uh, and um, every the organizations of society should change the way an organism change. That the the principle of life is Darwinian, not Newtonian. And uh, so the Dar- Darwinian in the sense that constant adaptation. Right. You know the 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 the, 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 the Darwin is not a, a progressive thinker. Some a lot of progressives seem to forget. But but it is a process of of constant adaptation that's not guided by a master plan but by the the response to the circumstances and Coolidge's speech says no he doesn't mention Wilson by name but he said you know the declaration of independence um if all men are created equal that's final that's not subject to review <laughs> that's not subject to organic change well we've decided that maybe down syndrome children are not created equal uh, we've decided that black people are not created equal, which of course Wilson was terrible on that issue. Um, you know, no, uh, the, the, the principle uh, enunciated there is, as he put it, eternal. Um, and that I think summarizes a very important fault line in uh, in American politics. It may be that it's not well illustrated by the existing parties. I think we have all Wilsonianism uh, uh, and not a whole lot of, uh, uh, we have a few people who represent the Coolidge point of view. But it's it's a shame, I mean, I think that, that so few people know about this speech. They know about Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt's great first inaugural speech. And I, I give, um, you know, I'm not a huge, certainly not an uncritical Roosevelt fan, but uh, it, it, but the whole uh, drift of that is, we, you know, we're not just going to sit around on our rear ends and and watch things go down and wait for for the, the markets to take care of everything. We're going to experiment. We're going to try things. And if this doesn't work, we'll try something else. But above all, we're going to try things. And um, uh, that's in a way, in a sort of cornpone way, a a, a, a uh, enunciation of an opposing principle. Of the a principle opposing Coolidge's and a reassertion of the the, the the kind of I would call it pragmatist rather than Darwinian, but there's a connection between sure. the two. John Dewey, John Dewey was much influenced by Darwin. So, um, and William James, uh, 
the the, the sort of crown princes of pragmatism. Uh, uh, so um, uh, uh, I, th- I think that that's something I really I, I'm very pleased to bring that uh, into the book and highlight it. Uh, the one really critical review of the book, which is in a, in a democratic socialist magazine. So I, I was expected, I expected it to be ignored, but uh, the, the, the reviewer has made fun of me for liking Coolidge so much, but uh, really, but I think, uh, well, you know, people who have been educated in the typical way are always made to see him as a buffoon and are a, a mm. kind of a straw man, stiff collared, um, person who just sort of turned the country over to the robber barons and that that's that's uh, i can't there was a uh... for, for family audience i can't find the right word but you know <laughs> it, it's that's not, uh, untrue untrue would work <laughs> inaccurate <laughs> there was one uh a yeah. quick aside in a in a very positive interview of your book that said and i i wanted to get your reaction it said one might quibble that mcclay is rather too generous to the tyrant henry the eighth and rather too harsh toward conservative stalwart and failed president candidate Barry Goldwater. <laughs> wow, I never saw that. Uh, um, I'm too hard on Barry Goldwater. Well, well, um, and I'm, I'm I'm too tolerant of Henry VIII. Yeah. <laughs> Boy, I I I didn't uh, I didn't think I gave him much quarter. I, I you know, um, um, but some people are never satisfied. Uh, <laughs> I, I think. Um, it made me laugh, so um, I figured. I wonder if hmm. you've seen this. This this just made me giggle. So yeah, I didn't. I didn't see that. I, this this sounds like a person who has has uh, the the courage of his or her convictions. And so <laughs> bra- bravo. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and you know, it's wonderful when people take the past really seriously. I gave a talk at. Um, I don't think this is off topic too much, but well, I gave a talk. That's at, the goal. Um, uh, at, at uh, what's the name of the place? Wyoming Catholic College, which is one of the most interesting, uh, a neighbor of yours, so to speak, uh, in Lander, Wyoming. It's a, it's a very, very fine place. And I just was, I'm not Catholic myself, but I was very happy there and I would have gladly stayed for a month. Um, but anyway, I gave a lecture uh, in which, in the culmination of the lecture, I praised Burke. Uh, Edmund Burke, because Burke um, argued for, um, and this extended to his view of the American Revolution, which was a positive view, but that that uh, the uh, the the glorious revolution was glorious because not because it had um, discovered and articulated um, abstract rights. which the Declaration, our Declaration of Independence, does do, by the way, but um, uh, that are grounded in nature and all that. And then, but Burke didn't tend to think that way. What he said was that it was uh, um, the Glorious Revolution was uh, a uh, a vindication of the inherited rights of Englishmen. In other words, it was the rights that had been established through a way of life. Through, uh, the, through the common law, through uh, um, I can't find a better way to say it than a way of life that had grown by by accretion, the way the common law grew. There actually was organic in character, mm. and uh, 
and not abstract. Um, uh, and uh, I had a member of the audience, one of the faculty there, just lit into me, uh, not in the Q&A, but afterwards about uh, this false and pernicious. And and, and he was, um, it turned out he was a, a, a member of the, oh, I forget what they call the Jacobite society, but he was, he, he was one of the people who um, thought that uh, the Glorious Revolution was not glorious because it had uh, ended the Stuart monarchy illegitimately. And, and of course, the, the regicide of Charles I was the great, you know, unforgivable, horrifying sin. And, and so it was, uh, uh, I mean, he, 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 let's just say he didn't like Puritans at all. <laughs> <laughs> they were all, they were all uh, just veiled Oliver Cromwells as far as he was concerned, uh, uh, or assassins um, and regicides. Uh, and I, you know, I, I found this guy really impossible to make any headway with. Uh, um, but I came away thinking, this is so, it's something wonderful about someone who takes the past so seriously. Yeah. Um, and who's to say that, uh, particularly for a, a very conservative Catholic like this guy, um, that the imminence of something even as remote as the the execution of Charles I isn't relevant. Uh, uh, who's to say? So I, I think that kind of a memory can be a, a healthy thing and an unhealthy thing. Um, mm. you know, I gave a talk once um, uh, in uh, Italy, and uh, there were some people in the audience who um, who were from the Balkans. And, um, you know, they, and they were talking, and I was talking about the importance of memory, the importance of history. And, um, again, it was more in the afterward discussion than the Q and A, but, uh, they sort of said, you know, look, we come from a part of the world, which we could do with a whole lot less memory. Um, hmm. and, uh, the memory of grievances going back, uh, hundreds and hundreds of years of scores needing to be settled. And it made me think of Northern Ireland and um, which at that time was, was in much worse shape than it is now. But, uh, um, and uh, there are ways in which the American tendency towards erasure of memory is not all that bad. You know, there, there's some, there's a kindness. It's in not, that too. It's not that it, there, there is. Yes. There's a kind of, um, uh, there's a kindness about erasure, and, and actually it's a very Christian thing because we do believe that um, there, are, there, there are ways in which uh, our Lord deals with, um, if, we, if, we, if we accept him uh, properly, with the residue of our sins. That instead of having to carry their weight around forever and ever without expiation, without uh, any kind of uh, atonement possible. Um, it, it is, uh, there is an erasure. There is a, a, a drying of every tear that, uh, that the Christian, um, um, outlook offers us. And that, and the history doesn't, you know, uh, <laughs> history all by itself is, it doesn't, in memory all by itself doesn't necessarily offer that it, 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 it you've got to be able to you, know, you got to find a strike a healthy balance between memory and and being here now as 
they say. Um, and, uh, so, uh, so I don't think historical consciousness is the be all and end all of all things, but I do think that we, we live in a time that's remarkably heedless of it. Um, one thing I, I, I don't want to close the interview without mentioning is uh, something about the book that I love and that, uh, that I didn't write myself. <laughs> uh, that's the epigraph. The, the uh, quotation at the beginning of the book, from the, right before the title page, um, yes. it is um, it it is wonderful, um, and uh, uh, it's from John Dos Passos, who was a great American novelist from the same period as Hemingway and uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and so on. Um, uh, he was very radical, uh, politically radical guy at that time. And, and a communist and all all that good stuff. And then then he shifted to the right um, and um, wrote wonderful books about America, which he had come to an appreciation of. And he he wrote this um, oh, a number of things. And, and there's, I recommend this book to people. There's a book, uh, an essay called The Uses of the Past, which is what I quote from. But the the, the title of the book, I want to, I want to get it right here. Hang on a second. And it, I think it's the ground on which the ground we stand yeah, on. The ground we stand on. I was not the ground on which we stand. The ground, um, a book published in 1941, which was you know not an easy year for the world. But here, this is gets to your point a moment ago. He he talks about the the um, how important the connection to the past is a sense of continuity the generation has gone before. He says, stretched like a lifeline across the scary present. Um, and then he goes on to say this, which I think is so applicable. He says, it gets us past the idiot delusion of the exceptional now, capital N, now, that blocks good thinking. And let me just continue and then gloss that a bit. That, that is why in times like ours, when old institutions are caving in, and being replaced by new institutions, not necessarily in accord with most men's preconceived hopes, political thought has to look backwards as well as forwards. Uh, you know, I love that. Every time I read that, I, I'm, I'm inspired again. But, but that that this is about the idiot delusion of the exceptional now. That is part of what we have to deal with. This is um, sense that you know, you and I are talking, probably both of us on on cell phones <laughs> that have more computing power than, you know, even the computer rooms in James Bond movies hold <laughs> and uh, just holding in our hands. We have all these, these uh, things that uh, are in a superficial way, transformative of the world. And I think, um, you know, I have students that tell me, I don't, I don't like, I don't, I don't watch movies in black and white. <laughs> I just won't do that. I won't watch a TV show, a movie, black and white. And, and it strikes me that there is this sense among young people, particularly, and um, that nothing that happened more than 20 years ago, if that much, hmm. has any relevance anymore. You know, we're, we're living in a different world. Yeah, I mean, it's true. Maybe for 2,000 years, people thought that... Uh, Marriage was this <laughs> between a man and a woman and monogamous and lifelong. But that's so 1960, 1950. You know, that's so, it's uh, even, you know, 
and you in in the ways the advances of gender ideology into their consciousness it's it's more of the the same the mutability of all things the adaptability of all things to the human will um and the only question is how how far one can go with it uh and the past the, the notion of the past is in some way instructive in some ways a constraint upon us um that uh, we we can't simply wish away uh, these are this is these are all ideas that are really alien to them that they're resistant to we do they, they are dwelling in the idiot delusion of the exceptional now um through no fault of their own um i mean idiot is a word that we we think of as a, just a disparaging word but I'm, i have no doubt that those pastors is using it in a sense that because he had a classical education that, you know, idios in Greek is, is kind of like uh, a solipsist or, you know, someone, maybe we might think of the the autistic spectrum, Um, but, but someone who is um, entirely inside himself, um, like the man who lives outside the city, and Aristotle is, is is either a beast or a god. Um, he's not a he's not a fellow member of society. So the idios, the delusion, is, is idiotic that we live in exceptional now because we imagine that we are separate and distinct hmm. from everything in the flow of time that has eventuated in this moment uh in this place this time in your being here in our conversation uh that but in fact it is all i mean we can never know it all uh, that all that flow because to know to know the flow would be to give up our participation in the flow you know we can't sit there's there's a sort of uh, being and knowing uh um, toggle switch there. Um, you know, you, you, you can't, you have, can't be entirely being and entirely knowing. Um, um, but, um, uh, uh, it, it, there, there is a greater degree. We need a greater degree of awareness of our participation in, in, in that long, master flow of things and and that's uh, you know and dos passos acknowledge he both insists on it but he acknowledges that he, so he begins the passage i quote by saying every generation writes its own history and that's important too we we're you know the past eliot t.s eliot says this remarkably well in some of his poetry in the quartet for quartets particularly uh, um um that um or, or his essay, um, Tradition and the Individual Talent, is a better example, he, which is very youthful production. But he gets it that there's some way in which the past changes because what we need to – what we're able to see in it, what we need to see in it, what we need to look for in it changes. Um, you know, there are lots of very common sense examples of that. You know, nobody cared much until fairly recently about the life of slaves in ancient Rome. Hmm. Now we're very interested in knowing about 
uh, about much, much, much more about it. And African American slavery in our own history is one of the most uh, has been all my career one of the most uh, exciting and uh, vibrant fields um, out there um, because there's there's so much to be discovered and it's so difficult to get to it but so important uh, to get to it again this is something that uh, until fairly recently for a variety of reasons um, um, part of it is, it had to do with the, the, the kind of demography of the profession. Part of it had to do with lacking the tools to get at um, the, the, knowledge, the life and experience of an inarticulate, uh, Ill, illiterate, literary in the sense of not being able to write things down, people. Um, uh, but so, so history does change. The past does change as we, the past as something that we, um, know and try to make sense of. So yes, every generation has to write its own history, but that doesn't mean that it, it, uh, um, as he says, let me just read again. He says in times that, that in easy times, history is more or less of an ornamental art, you know, it's something that gentlemen do in their spare time. Um, but in times of danger, we are driven to the written record by pressing need to find answers to the riddles of today. We need to know what kind of firm ground other men belonging to generations before us have found to stand on. And uh, and then he goes on. I, I, let me read this. Please, please. Uh, 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 in spite of changing conditions of life, they were not very different from ourselves. Their thoughts were the grandfathers of our thoughts. They, I love that. By the way, grandfathers, not the fathers of our thoughts, the grandfathers of our thoughts. Uh, I think that's, again, very subtle distinction. Um, they managed to meet situations as difficult as those we have to face, to meet them sometimes lightheartedly, and in some measure to make their hopes prevail. We need to know how they did it. And one of the things I point out to audiences when I talk about the book, and I always like to read this epigraph, which I never get tired of reading, uh, is that that this is in 1941 that he's saying all of this. And in 1941, Hitler is in control of all of continental Europe. It, it, it's happened in, the, in a flash, a blitzkrieg. Uh, and uh, um, only Great Britain, only the British Isles stand uh, out, and, then, and the situation there is very, very fragile. Um, you have Churchill giving great uh, <laughs> blustery uh, resistance speeches, but um, very you know, wavering confidence that, that they can stand. Um, the United States is firmly out of the picture, at least officially. Um, it it, but it, but there's a there's a real prospect that the United States will be pulled into this uh, this conflict um, with a terrifyingly effective German armed forces. Um, so this is when he writes all of this, uh, and, and 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 so for people to say, oh, you know, we've got Google and uh, Facebook. Uh, I mean, things are much much worse than they were back in 1940. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Are you really kidding me? Yeah, I mean, it's a horrible, horrible, all this horrible stuff. 
we've got people listening devices. We've got GPS. They can find out where you are. Well, okay. Um, It's just really, this is a big, we have a big challenge as to how we're going to deal with the effects of these sorcerer's apprentice-like things that we've let loose uh, in a kind of mindless way in our in our world, uh, our our technology is so far ahead of ourselves. These are all challenges, um, uh, and the the I think the level of um, distrust of institutions, which I talk about at the very end of the book, is profound and I think growing. Um, it it uh, and the the um, the pathologies the the, the the rate, uh, the, like 50% increase in the number of suicides over the last 10 or 15 years. I don't have these statistics handy, but they're very, just remarkable, uh, depressing statistics about um, a kind of moral collapse of much of the country. Um, so uh, we do have bad things going on. We, and we have a loss... I think above all, or maybe not above all, but but part of it is we have a loss of a sense of ourselves, of who we are, of whether we stand for anything at all um, as a country, um, whether we have any future. Um, You know, the the declining birth rates have something to say about that lack of confidence in the future. So, you know, these are spiritual... Uh, struggles as much as anything that uh, that that we are facing but um the notion that 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 the challenges of our own time are somehow uh exceptional and people had it was easy street before now <laughs> that's just so bizarre uh and uh uh, uh and and that and then the, the the notion that you you that you the past has nothing to teach us you know, George Washington owned slaves, period. Uh, close the book. Well, <laughs> that's not all there is to say about George Washington. And um, and to look at what he did, which I, and I'm, this is a very pro-George Washington book, I, I, <laughs> I confess. But to look at what he did, to look at the, the um, extraordinary, I mean, I don't know what else, their, their words fail me, but the extraordinary good luck, shall we say, putting it in a secular way, that we had to have such a man as our first national leader, someone who had, uh, may not have been an intellectual, but he knew he knew the important thing, all the things necessary to salvation, shall we say, and he knew um, uh, he knew that he had to be an embodiment of the nation, that he had to be um, uh, he, everything he did, every little thing he did, even the way he dressed, was, was setting a precedent. Uh, but George Washington holding the the army together in the Revolutionary War, you know, extraordinary. I mean, it was just a constant improvisation <laughs> uh, with with um, assets that could diminish from, or increase from day to day. Um, he had to somehow lead and deal with the political elements of, of that um, during that whole period. Uh, it, you know, 
you look and and when so when Don Dostoevsky says we need to know what kind of solid ground they stood on, we need to know how they dealt with their problems. Um, well, I'm not saying that George Washington can give you know us a solution to what to do exactly about our contemporary problems, obviously, but if we can rhyme with the past, um, <laughs> we we can we can learn from his example from his example of a kind of um, selflessness and uh, commitment to virtue, to the the appearance of virtue, yes. He was very acutely aware that it's it's important not just to be virtuous, but to appear virtuous. Uh, uh, And that's right. Uh, That's that's right. Um, There may be a way in which the the, particularly the great leaders of the past and that you can rhyme with them. Um, now, I, I'll tell you one other thing. Yeah, that yeah. I, I, I strongly weigh in against the, what I, what the, the kind of sentiment that is causing people to go around tearing down, you know, monuments, uh, not just to Confederate generals, but to people like Thomas Jefferson. Um, I think this is, this is wrongheaded for, at least two reasons. And I think, as I think the New York Times' 1619 project is very deeply wrongheaded. Um, it may be well-intended. I'm not so sure about that, but it's certainly wrongheaded. And that is that, that uh, you know, Jefferson, um, Jefferson's a man of his time and place. Um, and what, what he accomplished within that time and place is extraordinary. We we cannot see historical actors as acting in a kind of um, uh, extra historical space, so that we can judge them by did you know was was um, uh, was uh, you know was was uh, um, let's say went to Abraham Lincoln. You know, was he uh, sort of homophobic or transphobic? Or, you know, I, I, you know, this is these are just questions that are really quite meaningless. Um, <laughs> uh, now, I'm not saying Confederate generals. I think they're, they're, that's a special case, and I think I would leave it up to individual communities to decide these things. I, I would very much regret seeing a, a kind of Robespierre-like. Um, Tearing down of all all memorials relating to the, the Confederacy uh, um, in in Southern states, but that's a longer discussion. Uh, yeah, but but it's sort of a subset of the general point I'd make, which is that you know what Jefferson did in his own time was quite extraordinary, and uh, we we should try at very first to exercise the historical imagination to think ourselves into that world and not just with that sort of the, the exceptional now that we are in uh, is this sort of um, point on top, the top of the tallest mountain where we can look down our nose at everything else that's ever happened. Um, because, you know, as, 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 uh, uh, as the scriptures say, you know, the, the, the measure that you use is the measure you will receive, you know, and, and, um, we, we, we're guilty of all kinds of sins, conscious and unconscious for which a a future 
that is as um, morally uh, superior as our own, as, as toward our own past, will not be very forgiving towards. Um, right. So uh, I, I think Lincoln, you know, too, and I, I devote a lot of attention to things like the Lincoln-Douglas debates, where Lincoln is very clearly um, a disbeliever, or at least to the, his audience, he disassociates himself from the notion of racial equality. Um, he doesn't. Uh, he doesn't ever back away from the notion that. Uh, all men are created equal applies to African Americans as much as it does to whites. But he 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 clearly you know um, is you could call him a racist if if you wanted to probably he would the title would fit him more accurately than it does a lot of people that it's applied to today um, for reasons that are really actually quite flimsy. But um, but. Uh, Again, I think the historical imagination has to come into play, uh, and you have to see Lincoln uh, for what he was doing as uh, it's extraordinarily courageous and far-sighted and morally alive to the possibility that even his racial prejudices, I think we can call it that, um, were un unfounded. And then you know, his relationship with Frederick Douglass, which is very interesting, I don't really deal with much in the book, but um, uh, is is one of kind of coming to a, I think a change of heart on that issue towards the very end. It's hard to know and it would have been interesting, if not to say much better for us if he had been president during Reconstruction, but uh, we, we will never know. Um, yeah. Uh, so, so I go ahead. I think the development of a historical imagination is another thing I really want to try to encourage in this book. That that this and it and it, it all flows together. I mean, it, it, having a sense of connection to the past is also a sense of how different the past was. Hmm. That um, you know, um, to, to, to say you know. That your, of your great grandmother who stayed in a horrible marriage. Um, why didn't she just, uh, you know, move to move to New York and uh, and 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 uh, hang out in Greenwich Village? <laughs> or, you know, this is just, it, it shows a, a lack of historical imagination, to put it mildly. Um, right. Uh, and, and so I think historical imagination is it, it actually is has implications for us as Christians because its ability to think ourselves into the hearts and minds and sensibilities of other people at other times, but it's a transferable skill. It can also help us think ourselves into the hearts and minds of those around us who may on the surface be disagreeable and, and awful, but that, um, to see them a little bit more the way that God sees them, um, yeah, is uh, is an advance. It's an advance, and and, and I think uh, again, it, but it forces us to knock ourselves out of the uh, the idiot delusions uh, uh, that that our perspective is a kind of uh, mountaintop of uh, uh, objectivity above all lesser subjectivities around us. 
it there does seem to be a sort of um a Christian posture towards the past that cultivating an imaginative uh capacity to understand what they were going through uh to understand that it's not the equivalent of now you know there's yeah. a sort of kindness that way um how would you recommend for families um cuz as i said i think your intro really brings history home in terms of personally and and like and familially and around the dinner table um so let's say if somebody goes and grabs your book and they love it and they're looking for more that sort of hits that pitch of accessibility and readability while still being um, thoughtful and everything else. What would you recommend for families to go uh, run around and get and, and enjoy? Hmm. Um, that that's hard. I mean, I, I actually, um, let, let me answer you this way. And it is not necessarily going to point, Toward particular books, that sort of thing. But um, one of the things I, w- I used to teach at uh, the University of Tennessee in Chattanooga, and one of the great things about being there was that I, my students were almost all from maybe 50 to 70 mile range of, and mostly on the Tennessee side, not on the Georgia side of Chattanooga. So they were. This was a very rooted area, and people not only um, saw their, not only knew their grandparents, they would see them on a <laughs> daily, weekly basis. And uh, you know, there there was um, you know a, a lot of uh, historical memory to be drawn on, and um, um, and I finally thought about a couple of different ways of getting at sort of activating that in my students, one of which was because some of them did, you know, they were, they had Italian or other, you know, uh, surnames outside the usual Anglo-Saxon or Scotch-Irish, um, a lot of Scotch-Irish in that area. Uh, um, and, um, I, I could ask them, well, you know, um, do you still have a living grandparent or sometimes great grandparents uh, who, um, had some memory of the immigration of your family. In some cases, it would be parents, you know, uh, uh, but there, there's actually more of that than you might think for such a rooted area because uh, the immigrants came and then they just stayed and, and, and they didn't move on. They, they, uh, so um, um, it actually, there's a lot of Italians in, uh, in, in my classes that, who were third generation. And let me, let me just explain what, what that accomplished. I would have, say, I want you to do, as a project, I want you to interview your grandmother or whatever um, about, about immigration. You've read um, these writings about, about immigration. You heard me lecture about it as a national scale phenomenon <clears throat> with occasional mention of Oh, a lot of Polish people went to Chicago. A lot of Czechs went to Chicago. <laughs> a lot of yeah, so on. Uh, you know, there's there some specificity, but uh, mostly very big numbers. Um, uh, and uh, the the legal structure, you know, between 1870 and the immigration restriction in the 20s, um, 
and how it changed the character of cities and all that. But but it's all very very um, aerial view kind of stuff. So okay, you go, you know all of this. Now I want you to ask, interview your grandmother, and ask her about these things. Did, did, what was it like coming in to Philadelphia or Baltimore, or whatever, uh, New York, uh, when they arrived? What was uh, you know and and. Wow, I, I tell you, nothing I've done has ever been more powerful than that because it was, it was connecting the particulars of their lives with the large, the large abstractions that historians create and operate in. It it was like plugging actual numbers into an algebraic formula and watching the formula work. Um, one other example of this, which was even better. It took me a little while to figure it out. Was um, Chattanooga is in east, southeastern Tennessee. It's it's on the Tennessee River, and as you probably know, the that was one of the the, the taming the Tennessee River was one of the real sort of problems of development in that area. It was not navigable, and, you know, it, it, a lot of flooding and all sorts of other problems and. And so the Tennessee Valley Authority, which is one of the New Deal um, programs, although it had been, been in the making in some ways for a while, um, really transformed that region. You know, the, the, the building of dams, and creation of waterways, and, um, uh, you know, the, the, the development of hydroelectric power, uh, you know, this was a rural electrification was just then kind of coming on in many parts of the, the states, including Appalachia. Um, so uh, the area is transformed by all of this. It, within the living memory of members of my students' families that were easy for them to find an interview. And, uh, and actually one of the parts of the story that, is not often told um, is the displacement of people that was a consequence of this um, program. You, you know, you always see the account the, the New Deal TPA it seems this great thing. The only problem with it was it didn't go far enough further. So people who live there, it's a much more complicated. Um, you know, historical reality because right. uh, there are, there, there are, and you know, the, it, I, I like to think I actually made the families closer because here, you know, granddaughter or great granddaughter, you know, uh, Judy comes and says, uh, you know, grandma, what did you think about TVA when that came in? And, you know, Nobody's wanted to talk to grandma about TVA for at least 50 years. Right. And she's got a lot of stuff rattling around in her head, memories, this and that. Maybe on a family trip, you know, they, they're driving across Nickajack Lake and she says, I remember when there were houses down there. And, oh, grandma, shut up. <laughs> You're living in the past. Uh, well, uh, you know, all of a sudden that becomes interesting to the young person and, and the older people are ready to talk about it. You know, they're, they're amazed and I've gotten thank you notes 
from grandmas. <laughs> what a great thing you've done. <laughs> um, it, it um, um, and I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued by all that, but this getting back to your question now about Thomas and families. Um, I think that, that, that way, one thing, you know, when you teach an American history survey course, you have to cover a lot of stuff, some of which is, frankly, you know, has to be just sort of memorized, um, that you don't have any connection with it. it. It's it's hard. Even the most talented teachers can only do so much, you know, dressing up as, as Darwin or an Indian chief to teach a class. So <laughs> you only do so much to make it entertaining and interesting. But I think it's part of formal education. You have to lay groundwork. You have to learn. It's like you have to learn the multiplication tables and the, and your Latin uh, uh, conjugations and declensions and so on. <clears throat> but um, but once you have that, I think I think it is important for people to find uh, places to connect that large account of the past with um, their experience or the experience of members of their families. If you know um, my uh, grandfather, who I never knew, my, my maternal grandfather was a veterinarian, and uh, and he fought in the First World War. He was, or he was in the army in the First World War. He didn't fight actually. Um, well, you know, at one point, my son we found this trunk in my mother's house that had all his, his uniform and everything from. Uh, um, his military days. My son went crazy. We were homeschoolers, remember, at this point. And so he did a huge report on my grandfather, who I didn't know, <laughs> and about whom I knew very little. Uh, uh, and uh, this was a kind of connection to an event, World War One, uh, and the American participation in it, that... Um, that really mattered for him hmm. and really you know connected him with and had something abstract with something concrete. I think that's um that's another way of going about this and and I don't mean this in an identity politics way but but, but I think um uh, you know I think African Americans need some heroes out of African American history um I think you know, people of all you know if your your grandfather was an engineer on, on the Union Pacific Railroad man there's a lot of stuff there uh, you know find ways to connect the family and members of the family with history um, and that'll be different with every family you know if you're if your um, uncle was a social worker you know sure. look at histories of social work um We'd be Jane Adams, uh, um, but um, I think that's really good because it, it, the reality of it is we are storied beings, and if we're not connecting with that past that is there, um, we are essentially grandfatherless, or you know, and 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 mm -hmm. that has effects on us moving forward. It does. It does. And you know your use of the term grandfather, which you know, obviously you're alluding back to um, to Dos Passos, and I thank you for that. Uh, <laughs> um, but be, 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 
yeah, it, it is. It would be fun to talk about why grand, why grandfather, not mother, but uh, you get it, obviously. The audience will just have to guess. Uh, <laughs> but um, <laughs> uh, but I think I've gone over my time. Don't you? <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, I've enjoyed it so much. And I, if you would be open and willing in the future, we'd love to have you back. To, oh, to, yeah. To, um, is there anything we can look forward to uh, from you in the future? Is there anything I can pre-order soon, maybe from you? Oh well, <laughs> well, I told you at the beginning we have this teacher's guide, and it, That's right. it should be out That's pretty right. soon. But I don't think, I, since I just sent the manuscript in on January first, I don't think it's on Amazon yet. But but we're r- really rushing production on this. We've Great. already got the des- the design, the cover layout. Um, I can send you the cover if you want yes, to see please, it. Yes, please, please. But you have to get strictly embargoed in terms of sharing it with other people. But, it, um, yes, Secret Safe with me. Um, yeah. This cover, by the way, Land um, of Hope, everyone, is is a it's a beautiful book. Isn't it? Isn't it? They did such a great job. It's it's and, beautiful. You know, book. I can I I can take credit for only one. I can take credit for the title, although I fought with them a little bit about it. I had I. I they they really they kind of pushed me. The subtitle reflects um, their desire to communicate to readers. This is an affirmative story, and my desire to be modest about it and say an invitation. So, the Land of Hope was my title all the way, and uh, um, and uh, the other thing is the selection of the art. I I had an idea of what I wanted. They originally did a design, beautiful design, um, just gorgeous. But it had a sort of pastoral, was well, actually a Grant Wood um, farmland painting, and you know, and those are just really lovely and very symmetrical and beautiful and green. But um, and it worked well with the type uh, and all of that. But um, I said, you know, this is great. This is fabulous. This is first rate. But it won't. I don't think this will do. I don't want uh, people to look at it and say, "Well, this is going to be a backward-looking, um, nostalgic view of American history, of an America that never was." You know, of of intact families and you know, <laughs> sort of you know, you know the kind of things sure, people sure. habitually say. Um, and, uh, um, I, I said, what I want to do is 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 something that is urban and that has some, something of the feeling that you get, that upward thrust of energy that you get when you walk into a cathedral, a great cathedral like the cathedrals of Europe or or even the National Cathedral of Washington or uh, Grace Cathedral of San Francisco, whatever. Um, uh, and this is what I found. Uh and, and I, I do think it does that. I do think you get a sense, not just of the impressive skyline, but of this upward energy, oh, this yeah. sense of possibility. And that's what I wanted to convey, um, that, um, that this, 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 there's a spiritual quality to this country at its best. And we shouldn't lose that. We shouldn't sacrifice that for anything. Um, uh, it's, um uh yeah i mean that's really i think the core of the book is is that the sense that 
it's a land of possibility, a place where people have never been willing to settle for the conditions into which they are born. Hmm. Um, and, um, uh, that, that entails a whole lot of things, the material and spiritual. And I, I meant it to cover all of them. So as you know, cause you read the introduction and, and you know, that's what I say there, but, uh, um, Anyway, it, it's been Amazon. Amazon's the best place. Cheaper. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, awesome. I think Amazon. Barnes and, but look, I want to say a pitch for Barnes and Noble too because they um, they were really wonderful about putting the book in their stores. And uh, I, you know, the the week the book came out, I happened to be in New York, and I walked into the Barnes and Noble in Union Square, which is like the least. The least conservative place on earth, <laughs> maybe. But uh, I, I and I, I thought I was curious that they really do have. Sure. It was right by the door. Wow. Big, huge table. Did you sign and it? I thought, well, bless you, Barnes. No, no, no. I didn't even let them know who I was. I oh. just was being a, a lurker. <laughs> and uh, um, it is a strange experience uh, for me to to have that. To see people uh, send me pictures of people they see at airports reading the book i'm just i didn't expect that but so um, funny uh it that it, it it is um uh it, i really do want to call out barnes and noble but and then if you ever feel inclined to sort of uh your re your other listeners that to um not use amazon because they become too powerful which i says view i respect um i should follow it myself but um, don't let them hear me saying it. But uh, <laughs> uh, Barnes and Noble, Barnes and Noble uh, uh, probably doesn't have as much of a discount because they're not in the data mining business the way Amazon is. But still, um, that's that's another place you can get it. Awesome. Um, and uh, I'd love to come to Idaho sometime and do a book signing. So Please, that would be great. Like that. that would be that would be great. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, Congratulations on the book. It was it was fantastic. Well, thank you. Recommended it to our readers. Thank you. Land of Hope. And again, thank you so much for your time. And Pepperdine, no less. Well, thank you. Yeah, Pepperdine. Pepperdine. <laughs> well, you know, we're this is a this is a place of backsliding theologically. Uh, um, how should I put it? Um, loose uh, evangelicalism. So. You know, a good dose of canon. That's right. And Doug Wilson and that whole, you know, could, would do this area some good. Yes. Uh, so, okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.